episode number nine with Gavin McClurk. Today on episode number nine, I'm joined by Patagonia athlete Gavin McClurk. So, Gavin has recently become a friend of mine through some work we've been doing. Um, Gavin is based in Idaho in the US and Gavin has uh, been working with me in regards for sleep and recovery. In particular for a race that he recently completed in Europe which was the Red Bull X Alps which is a paragliding and a foot race across the Alps from Salzburg in Austria to Monaco in the south of France. And in 10 days Gavin flew 1500 kilometers and a little bit more and walked and ran approximately 498 of those kilometers and scaled approximately 52,000 meters of vertical ascent so that's about going up and down Everest five times you know so um, Gavin is, is quite the athlete and uh, he makes some of my races around the Leadville and ultramarathons look fairly amateurish on top of this as well Gavin is uh, the 2015 National Geographic Adventure of the Year this is due to his unpowered powered lighting expedition across the Canadian Rockies. He became the first person to tra- traverse the full length of the Alaska range by foot and paraglider on support in 2016. He is the owner, founder and captain of Offshore Odyssey, a global kite surf and surfing and sailing expedition. And he has twice circumnavigated the world by sail, living at sea for 13 years straight. Some crazy epic adventures here from Gavin, including short-handed roundings of both notorious Capes, Horn and Good Hope. Gavin currently holds the North American record for foot-launched cross-country paragliding, a flight of 240 miles deep into Montana from his hometown of Sun Valley in Idaho. If you Google Gavin, he's got a Wikipedia page, he's got a number of different videos available, and I would uh, urge you to check some of those out. Gavin does speak about those in this podcast, um, so yeah. As always, you can send feedback to me at Ian Dunican at sleepforperformance.com.au. Check us out on iTunes and Podbean and uh, our website, sleepforperformance.com.au, for more information on sleeping performance. Now into the episode. Gavin McClure, welcome to Sleep for Performance Radio. How are you doing? Yeah, great, Ian. It's uh, good to be on the show. I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you. It's always a pleasure. It's good to have you. So, Gavin, where, where are you today in the U.S.? I'm in Sun Valley. I'm at home. Uh, so after the race, I, I came back here and I got strict instructions from uh, my trainer and good friend and one of my uh, race crew in the race, uh, Ben Abruzzo, who has been a part of the last two uh, campaigns there in Europe. So. Uh, he said to not do anything for a month, and I've been quite enjoying that. Uh, I had a baby here about uh, 14 days ago, so Congratulations. I had a little girl that we added to the, the family, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, so I've just been uh, chilling to an extent from uh, the physical side of things, but I'm also uh, building a big, uh, not big, but I'm building an adventure van. I'm doing a conversion on a van so we can... Uh, throw the little one in there and and keep going hard you know i don't i don't really want this to slow me down too much so yeah so i love the way i love the way you're having a rest for and a break but you have a kid yeah, you're, yeah. you're building a van like you're yeah. doing all this crazy stuff you're worse than me <laughs> I, i'm not very good at relaxing that's that's on the that's always that's on the perpetual uh, new year's eve resolution you know to, to figure out how to, how to turn the dial back a little bit but you know, i haven't figured that out yet so some some body that's in idaho yeah, we're kind yeah. of central Idaho. We're in the big mountains, uh, quite close to the desert, and uh, that's beautiful, man. It's a it's a small town. We just had the eclipse actually two days ago. The totality went you know right over our house, which was pretty exciting. Oh, nice. And uh, yeah, so it's a good time to be home. It's it's a little ski town. You know, I think population thirty five hundred, and uh, it's fantastic backcountry skiing. But I moved here for the flying. It's uh, world class flying. We get really super tall here, and uh, it's a great place to train. It's very very rowdy flying and very strong thermals, and so yeah, this is home. So, Gavin, there's people probably listening to this this little intro that we're having, and they're probably going, "What is he talking about flying? Is this guy a pilot? Is he a <laughs> helicopter guy? Is he special forces? How would you describe yourself? And what are these races that you do?" 
Yeah, so the, the well, the race I've been talking about is the it's called the Red Bull X Alp. Uh, it's it's billed as the you know quote unquote. I always say that I don't know why I say that, but the the hardest adventure race on earth. Uh, it's a paragliding slash foot race across the Alps that starts in Salzburg and ends in Monaco via a series of turn points. Typically, some of the tallest mountains uh, that in the in the Alps. So. Every edition, it happens every two years. It started in 2003. Uh, it happens every two years. And uh, every edition, of course, because it's Red Bull, they make it harder and longer and more brutal. Um, it's just kind of the ultimate supper fest. And this year was the worst, apparently, of all of the editions because the weather was terrifically bad, which meant we couldn't fly as much as we would have liked. And we ended up doing a lot of work on the ground. So I think in the 12 days, uh, only two guys made it to Monaco. And in the 12 days, I can't speak for everybody else, but I did 16 and a half marathons and climbed 34,000 meters. So I think Everest four times. Uh, so pretty ridiculous amount of ground game and, uh, and, and also a lot of flying, I think a thousand kilometers of flying. So, uh, but what I am, yeah, to answer your question, I'm a paraglider pilot. So I fly paragliders and, uh, there's kind of two main disciplines of paragliding. There's acro. So, you know, where people fly and do lots and lots of tricks and come down very fast. Yeah. And that's all, you know, part of a kind of a, a coordinated series of moves and they, they get judged. And then there's cross country flying, which is what I do. And, uh, and so that's for distance. So to give you an example, uh, you know, here in Sun Valley, you know, a, a, a big day would be, uh, you know, 250 to 350 kilometers in a day. Uh, so you can, you know, on a good day, you can fly quite far and you can stay in the air 10, 11, 12 hours in the you know, middle of summer when you've got a lot of sun. So, uh, yeah. And, 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 and then we have races, uh, you know, kind of, they're very similar to sailboat races, uh, so we, there's the highest level is the world cup and you travel around the world, uh, and go to these events and, and race around with 130 other pilots and, uh, whoever's fastest to goal over a number of different days wins the race. So very, very similar to sailboat racing. There's usually an upwind leg and a downwind leg, crosswind leg. Um, and what we're doing, the, that's very different than the Red Bull X Alps. The Red Bull X Alps is very much an endurance event. And uh, it starts off with 32 athletes. I think this year uh, they eliminate the whoever's in last gets eliminated every 48 hours. So there was five eliminations and then seven uh, withdrawals due to injury or accident or exhaustion. In this case, a few people had to bail out just because they were just worked. Um, so, yeah, but only only two people made it to model in the time allotted, which was 12 days. Man, crazy event. I think it's good, like doing a hundred k, and you know, ultra marathon in a day or a hundred miler. I think that's awesome, you know. And people pat me on the back for it, but doing something like that is absolutely crazy. So, like, yeah, that, it's, it, <laughs> I was just going to say, say it's, it. it's it's quite interesting that in that it, it it's 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 kind of the ultrathon distance, um, not as fast, but it's 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 that kind of ultrathon thing, but then 10, 12 days of it. <laughs> so it's, uh, and you, and the other big difference is you carry your gear. Uh, so, um, the, the kits ultralight these days, but you know, you've still got 20, 22 pounds of gear. So that's your, your helmet, your instruments, your wing, your, your harness, uh, you know, your man, you have a mandatory amount of kit that you have to carry the whole time. So, uh, you can't hand that off, but you have a crew that can support you so they can water you and they feed you and, you know, you sleep in the race van usually at night. Sometimes you, you camp up high, but most of the time you're down in the valleys at the end of the day and, and walking hard until the shutoff time. You can move between 5.00 AM and 10.30 PM every day. And then one time in the race, you can go all night. You call what you pull it, what they call a night pass. Um, but your, your crew, your race crew is critical component so you know because after about day three you get pretty worked and they're helping you make a lot of the kind of tactical and strategy decisions along the way and then of course feeding you and then most days are you know six eight ten thousand calorie days so they're you got to replenish that as best you can and so that's what you got your team for yeah it's, it's quite an event and um, so when i when i look at this gavin and i think about human performance or optimizing human performance there's there's nearly all domains here you've got this kind of uh endurance type activity over these number of days up to 12 days like you were saying but not only it has to be kind of physically on point for this trial today and there's windows of physical performance throughout the day as we know but you have to be physically performing from like you know half five six in the morning up to through 10 o'clock at night so you know running 
either on the flats, in the valleys, you know, climbing some serious altitude, descending some um, significant steeps, you know, on these mountains as well on, on foot. Um, and then once you get into the paragliding phase, whilst it is physical, it's probably more cognitive as well, I would imagine, trying to, you know, kind of analyze this data real time coming in about winds, direction to go, you know, not making it actually worse for yourself. So you've got this kind of physical and cognitive thing happening, this strategy happening as well. Because when we look at ultra running, for example, it's very much just follow the markers and move along. So even if you are kind of losing your mind, you can still just keep plodding along. But this this requires, you know, a lot of strategy. And what it reminds me a little bit about when you're speaking about is like special forces operations, guys who have to kind of get dropped off somewhere and move over great, great distances to try to reach a target by any means necessary and constantly thinking about this. How do you balance, I suppose, before we get into the sleep part of that, how, how do you balance kind of decisions with cognitive and physical challenges? How, how do you kind of, how would you describe this? Yeah, I mean, just to kind of reemphasize what you were talking about too, I, that, that really is the big difference. And I think why, you know, they bill it the hardest adventure race on earth and why that has some some pull because there are, you know, they're, they're like the Iditarod. There are other events that are that are quite torturous in terms of physical the side of things but that that's the big difference um, with this race and most of the others is the other ones that you know if you if you train really hard and you can you know you can keep pretty well fed it's a matter of who, who can suffer the best you know you just yeah. you put your head down and just keep going um and then this one you know that those those people most of the people in the race are capable of that but you're not going to win unless you fly really well and that requires you know i mean typically to fly well you've got to be super well rested you got to be well fed and you've got to be cognitively really on top of the game because the the, the bottom line fact of paragliding is is you're, you're flying uh, an aircraft that can crumple up into a tissue and uh and it's it's just the fact is it's really dangerous so um and then you're flying in a race where the conditions are typically not ideal you know you're flying against a lot of wind and you're you're flying in rotor and lee and um so but to answer your question it's mostly training it's mostly coming to the event and being incredibly well prepared um and that the, there's there's been an interesting there's there's been an interesting uh how i don't even want to say it there's you know it, it started off back in 2003 as very much an adventure race and guys were carrying pots and pans and you'd wait for your buddy that was 10k behind <laughs> so it was it was really it was an adventure across the alps and it wasn't so much a race you know i mean yeah, people yeah. were racing but it was it was uh, not nearly as sophisticated as it is now. And the level of sophistication now, and the, the teams are moving so fast that it's, you know, everybody's got their own weather team and they've got their own, I mean, it, it, you, you really dive into all these little minutia and micro stuff to save seconds. Um, and, but the big thing is being able to fly well. And that means that to, to do it safely, every time you launch off the hill, you know, it's the most important flight you've ever taken because if you screw it up, you've only got one screw up, uh, in terms of potential injury or worse. Uh, and so we take the nutrition side of things and the supplement side of things and the sleep side, and you were actually really instrumental in and in assisting with this whole thing. Um, incredibly serious, you know, that there's, there's all the things that you taught me uh, that we incorporated that are really important. But uh, I mean, just globally, it's the, the stuff that's, that's really important is that, you know, two to five o'clock at night. And you know, that, that is, that is time that you have to be down and you have to be how I trained for it though, is, is, it's almost like, it's almost a lifetime. You know, I spent 15 years sailing around the world. So for me being sleep deprived is just, <laughs> it's part of my a big chunk of my life and so I, I feel like part of it's just practice isn't it you know it, it is is recognizing number one that you're um you're not at 100 percent, and what does that mean and how can i still be safe and part of it's just being aware of it and is often you're not and and nothing wakes you up like taking a flight but sometimes <laughs> before, before you're in the air is when the accident can happen it's just on takeoff and so um 
a lot of it is that, you know, we, we start training really seriously nine months before the event. And so October 1st, before the event, the event uh, this year was July 2nd when it started. So our serious training started October 1st. Um, and that's, you know, it's very much a buildup, you know, each harder and harder. You know, of course there's a nice taper at the end, but I would credit most of the success of, you know, feeling good as the race went by, I actually felt stronger and stronger and better and better as the days went by. Um, and I credit all of that to Ben and, and what he, you know, what he puts me through in the lead up, you know, the, uh, the, the will to win is nothing without the will to prepare. Right. So I, I you know, I think that we suffered less, I think, than a lot of the teams just because we, we worked really hard in the lead up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that all kind of, you know, thing from what military people say about piss poor planning leads to piss poor performance. So it's the same, yeah. it's the same kind of thing, you know, about, you know, putting in the hours and getting the work right, getting the system right. And then just on it there, it's just easy. All you have to do then is actually just do it, you know, as opposed to, you know, kind of yeah. having all these issues on the day. So it's, it's interesting. And I kind of joke. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead. Yeah. Go on. Well, Ben and I kind of joke, it was more, more of a factor in 2015 because, you know, tra training all seems to be cumulative. But uh, in 2015, we went through three months, you know, kind of March, April, May is always the, the worst month. Um, constant state of being really, really sore, like really sore, ridiculously sore. And, uh, and Ben, at one point I said, you know, Ben, I'm hurting, man. I mean, is this, is this, are we going to back off here at some point? And he said, good. If you hurt now, that means you're not going to hurt in the race. That's good. Keep going. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, I, it, like you said, it's, it's, I, and I, I think part of it is also that Ben is, has a long military background. You know, he, he served in Iraq. Um, you know, he's done, he's been through all that pain and, you know, he, his, the easiest way he, he says about training is, you know, if you want to get strong, <laughs> you know, because I'm carrying the gear across there, but you know, he just loads me up all the time with heavy stuff, just carrying heavy dumbbells around the gym and yeah. walking with a lot of weight. And, uh, you know, it helps. It's, it's interesting. I said, I got him because yesterday I had that same conversation with a friend of mine who was actually on this podcast in episode three. And we've got like 242 steps here in the city center of, of Perth called Jacob's ladder that leads into the park. And so often you will see me walk up and down that with a 20 kilo weight vest, which is up like 40 odd pounds. And it's the same thing as well. I go up and down that 10, 12 times, but then when I take that off and the next day I go running for a 20 K run, feels so good because you have that weight off. Or when you do go to these, you know, ultra, ultra endurance events and you are walking up, um, up through a valley and there's all these kind of naturally formed steps in the, in the ridge line, they're walking up and people are like, you know, bent over puking. You're like, well, I've been here many times. So you just, you just kind of zoom up and you go in your mind. It's like, well, I don't have a 20 kilo with us. So it's not yeah. as bad. It could be worse. But it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you speak about the sleep deprivation a moment ago, because um, this is a, a topic that comes up a lot about, can you get used to sleep deprivation? And so really the body can't get used to it in terms of, you know, you lose that sleep and that's it. But your points are really interesting about, You've been there a number of times and you understand how to manage it. So not that you're used to it, but you understand how to manage it. We see this a lot in adventure racing. We see this a lot in military. I've experienced it as well. Um, I know many of our listeners have as well have experienced this. And it's understanding around getting the balance of resting at certain times, having the right hydration and the right nutrition so we don't start hallucinating, for example. So, you know, I remember the very first ultra I ever done, I was getting chased by about 50 wild horses in the mountains, but there's no horses in those mountains. So, you know, I just, these crazy things happen. So you've got to have all these things dialed in. So managing through those low points is key. So I think that was a really interesting point that you brought up. So um, it's a question. I, I had a really funny, uh, yeah, I, I had a really funny experience in the first race in 2015, the last night. Um, I, I pulled, pulled a, I had, a, I had two night passes in the first race cause I, they had this mini race in the beginning called the prologue. And if you're top three in that, you get an extra night pass. And I was third in the prologue. So I had this extra night pass. So the, the last night of the race, there was a guy that, uh, I'd been in front of you know, that whole day and I made a big mistake in the air that day and he flew over my head and, and I was just fixated on running this guy down that night and he had a night pass as well and so he was i think when i landed that night at 9 p.m he was like 23k ahead so i mean the odds of catching him were 
ludicrous, but I was convinced I could do it. And uh, so I started running as soon as I hit the ground, packed up my stuff and, and Ben caught up with me eventually and was running along with me for a bit. And I said, you know, do I, you know me, do, do I have, is the last night of the race? We'd already done at that point, uh, you know, 350 miles or something on the ground. And so, uh, it, it, so all, yeah, almost 600 K at that point. And, uh, and I, and I said, can I run all night and all the next day? Cause I had about a hundred K to get to the, to the, to the end. And, uh, and so I had to run all night and then all the next day if we had a chance. And, uh, and he said, you know, so I said, you know, can I run a hundred, can I run 60 miles on the last day of the race? Is it, is even, can I do it? Yeah. And he said, yeah, you can do it, but you're going to hurt. You know, this is going to be incredibly painful. And, uh, and so I started running and that morning, about five o'clock in the morning, I was, you know, by myself just running down this road and there was some traffic and, and, uh, there was a bridge ahead of me and, and I had been falling asleep running and I kept catching myself right out in the middle of the road. And I mean, I was still moving, but I was just, I think my eyes were open, but I was gone. And, uh, and at one point this guy I was trying to run down, he's, the, he's Dutch and a good, very good friend of mine, Ferdinand Van Schelven. He's done a bunch of these exiles. Uh, and, and there he was, he was sitting on the bridge, just clear as day and just sitting there. And I walked up and Ferdy, what are you doing here? What's going on? And there was no Ferdinand then, you know, and it happened like five times in a row. There was nobody there. It was a complete apparition. You know? it was just totally hallucinating. Um, but to your point on sleep, I mean, we learned a lot in that one. And it, I mean, it's not, you know, yes, in one sense, you know, because of all the sailing, and I think I'm good at operating on, on, on not as much sleep, but we recognized in the 2015 race that, you know, it's not something to be callous about at all. And so months in advance, and part of this was in talking to you, you know, when we did months before the event, was setting up really strict protocols on, on how we would manage sleep. And, um, you know, it was, it was from everything. It was from the supplements I was taking. And, um, the, you know, we had these sticks made up that were, you know, magnesium sticks. They were kind of like deodorant. And so, yeah. you know, four or five times in the day, I'd just be putting it right on my skin, you know, because you just, you can't get enough magnesium when you're, when you're working that hard. Um, you know, no caffeine. We load up seriously on caffeine when I'd first wake up in the morning. And then again, it kind of main breakfast, like a hobbit breakfast. Going up for the main flight. So I had like a morning flight. I'd already covered a lot of time on the ground. We'd have a big breakfast and, uh, and a bunch of caffeine then. And that would be our points in the race where we'd make our decisions. So we, we wouldn't make any decisions when I'd first get up. That was always just, I'd wake up five minutes before five. Um, they'd have a little thing of me, you know, like a little bit of carbs and uh, a little bit of coffee and hit the road and here's your route. And, you know, but we weren't making any like strategy, any big time yeah. decisions because everybody's coming out of the fog of, you know, three or four hours of, of pretty decent sleep. Uh, and then we'd have, it, it, when we'd stop at nine or 10, then that would be a proper time where we'd, we'd set aside, you know, 10 minutes for a proper weather briefing, a pro proper strategy briefing, you know, proper, okay, here's what we want to do. Here's best case scenario, here's best case, worst case. Um, so we'd work all that out when we were awake. Um, and then later in the day, you know, definitely no caffeine after two, and then start to get, start, be, start, we always be thinking about sleep by 7 p.m. You know, we'd always be thinking about, okay, well, here's probably where he's going to get. So we want to make sure we're in a place that's not loud. You know, we, we don't want to be right on a freeway. We want to be a little bit off the road. Um, he's got to be doing his mobility. Like at 10 p.m., we do usually start, do some rolling out, do some mobility, nice cup of tea, a um, little bit of massage. And, you know, get in that frame of trying to dump the adrenaline, trying to get out of that. Because sometimes, you know, at 1030, you know, you've just had a good flight. You're all ramped up. There's lots of excitement still. And that's the worst thing for trying to get to sleep. So we tried it. We were really cognizant of playing the long game. You know, like you said, in an ultrathon, you know, or a 24-hour event, who cares? You know, you don't need yeah. to worry about it. Anybody can suffer through that. But when it's 12 days you really have to be flying well on the 12th day. And, uh, and that meant really managing that very closely. I was using a lot of products from on it, you know, some just great supplements. I was using this stuff called Vespa from Peter uh, Defty. That was terrific. Um, you know, we, we made my body very fat adaptive months before the event. So we stuck, we stuck with that. So a lot of protein, a lot of fat, um, not nearly as much, 
in the, in the 2015 event, I basically lived on Coca-Cola and goo and, you know, sugars, a lot, a lot of sugar. And, uh, and, you know, not that we didn't have any of that in this race, because sometimes you just got to stay, you, you know, you can't bonk. And so, so there were times where that stuff came in quite handy, of course, but, you know, we tried to rely a lot more on whole food when the heart rate wasn't that high and a lot of butter, a lot of cheese, a lot of protein and, and, and took the sleep part of it really seriously. You know, that we, even when we pulled my night pass the first night, um, we stopped at 3 a.m. And, and slept from three to six, just knowing that, you know, it's not going to be worth it to hike that 15, 20 K that you're going to get in those three hours as opposed to sleep, you know, cause that's one hour of flight. So, um, better to save that energy for, for when it really matters. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that I've to discuss that it's probably worked because we've had the conversations previously. It's probably worked me just touch on a few points because, um, I speak about these or write about these in blogs or on podcasts or speak to people face to face. A couple of reasons why we had those strategies around for you in the morning was when people wake up at five o'clock, they're basically with low sleep and they're coming out of that period of REM sleep between three and six, they have what's called sleep inertia. And so that's why we didn't have any big major decisions being made. We just wanted to get you a small bit of food, a bit of caffeine, get you moving, you know, kind of clear the fog, as you say. And then between 9 and 11 in the morning, this is this window of opportunity for cognitive performance. This is when we make our best decisions. And so that's when we had your kind of strategy meeting so, um, there as well. In addition to that, the caffeine after 2 o'clock, we wanted to do that because we knew that by loading up in the morning, we'd be getting the ergogenic effects of caffeine for at least another 4 to 6 hours after that. So the caffeine would still be in your system up until 6 to 8 p.m. And then it would start kind of tapering off or weaning out of the system which would then allow you to kind of come down for sleep. And it's great to hear you talk about, Gavin, the kind of pre-bed routine, doing some mobility work, having some food, trying to just relax the whole nervous system. Because this is what we deal with a lot. Um, with, with amateur athletes, for example, they'll work like nine, 10 hours a day. Then they'll go take pre-workout at six o'clock in the evening, go into the gym, pump weights for an hour or two, or go in and do like, you know, jujitsu MMA, they go back home, eat dinner at nine o'clock, and then they, then they wonder why they can't fall asleep by nine fifteen. And it's like, yeah. man, you've just you've just been training like a lunatic. You've dosed yourself up on caffeine, and you know, and you've shoved your your system full of food. Now you want to try to achieve sleep, you know. So it's great to see that you have this kind of ramp on in the morning, you know, optimizing those times during the day for performance, and this kind of ramp down at night, and. Um, you know, that, that was really, um, it's really pleasing for me to hear that you were able to put those into, into practice and that it worked um, and that you well, can kind of bonk as well, as you said. So it might be just worth explaining yeah. what bonk is as well. Bonk is um, for people, because bonk means sex in some countries, uh, <laughs> particularly, particularly in Ireland and England, people say having a bonk is about having sex. But bonking um, during a race is actually just about basically losing your mind from lack of food, really. It's kind of like yeah. you space out and have these kind of hallucinations and you just can't move anymore. Um, and so we, we refer to that the ultra running community as well as bonking as well. So you don't want to bonk. It doesn't mean the other thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was really interesting too in this race to just see, um, you know, to, to see the results of it because there was, you know, there were quite a few, uh, the athletes who were really fit, you know, the strong guys um, just cave, you know, they just went down. And so it's, it's, it's everything. It's, it, you know, it's managing your joints, it's managing your body structure, it's managing your frame. Um, you know, you have to build all that, uh, and really focus on all that. You know, if it's not the kind of race where you can just go in and be like, I'm just going to grunt through this, you know, the, yeah. and there's also this pacing aspect, you know, a, a lot of it, what's really fascinating about this race is that, um, very often the young super fit guys, um, get, they just, they, they run themselves into the ground and they cave day six, day seven, day eight. Um, you know, they don't pace themselves. And so it's, it's this great, uh, what I love about it is this, this huge thinking aspect, like you said, the cognitive aspect of it, that you, you really have to play the long game. And, and we took that quite seriously with sleep. If you recall the reason, one of the reasons I really came to you was that, in the 2015 event, um, we, I, I suffered 
terribly from sweat. Uh, so I, I had this massive kind of inflammation response from kind of day two on. Part of it was because Europe was was going through a massive heat wave. It was the hottest it had ever been that July uh, in history and in 2015. So part of it was just the heat that we were dealing with on the ground. But, you know, I would, I'd go to bed and I had always been a very light or terrible sleeper anyway, uh, and from all, all those, you know, like sounds and sounds and bad sounds, you get very attuned to the bad sounds. And so I had just basically given over to the fact that I was a terrible sleeper. And, uh, and so anyway, in the 2015 race, um, I would wake up in the morning, wake up from whatever terrible sleep I'd had. And uh, just literally being a lake of, of sweat. I mean, it wasn't like I was, you know, that nasty when you sleep and you're hot. Yeah. This was not that. This was literally, I mean, I could have drowned almost in how much water was in the bed. It was disgusting. And my, my, like my feet got really big. And, you know, they, I had 12 pairs of shoes that I would typically rotate, but none of them were big enough. You know, so, I, so then I started getting really bad blisters and it just, it got worse and worse as the race went on. And, uh, and so going into this event, I mean, and it made it unpleasant. It was, you know, I was still able to grunt through it and it was a terrific experience. But when I decided to do 2017, I thought, okay, I really got to get a grip on this. I got to figure out what was wrong. Um, the swelling turned out to be, we think mostly diet. Uh, you know, a lot of that sugar, I was also eating just Advil, like it was candy, uh, to, because I was worried about my joints. I have quite bad knees and I had never done something, you know, hugely endurance like that. And I, I mean, I had been training for it. I hadn't had any pain in training, but I was worried during the race. So suddenly we changed things for the race and how we'd done in the training. You never want to do that. You want to race exactly like you've trained. So yeah. part of it was just being rookies and not understanding, but a big part of it going in this time, uh, you know, I sat down with a good friend of mine and a good friend of yours. Uh, I believe he's had you on the podcast, Nick Hawks. And we were having a beer one, one night in, in California months before the event. I think this was in April. And I was you know, telling him that about my sleep difficulties. I was a really shitty sleeper. And, and, uh, and he said, hey, man, I, you know, I, there may be other physiological things going on, but it sounds to me like you've convinced yourself that you're a bad sleeper. So convince, you know, you're, you're obviously mentally strong. You do all these these events convince yourself that you're a great sleeper and i was like god that sounds pretty simple and i went to bed that night and i laid down and i meditated for half an hour and i thought i'm gonna sleep like a baby tonight and since that day i've slept so well it, it literally he changed my whole that sounds kind of woo woo but um that's just what happened you know he, he just said stop being a pussy and uh and just tell yourself you're a good sleeper and you'll be a good sleeper. And part of it was just that, you know, when you and I talked, you gave me some real concrete ways to, to manage the event. But, you know, at that point I had become a good sleeper. I, you know, I sleep really well now because I go to bed and, and I have these things I do, you know, I take some turmeric tea and some ginger and some stuff that I, I feel like works for me. And, uh, and I get really calm and I always read. I don't do any screens after 6 PM. A lot of these things that you taught me, and then, uh, and I go to bed and I'm convinced I'm going to sleep well. And then nine hours later I wake up. <laughs> it's terrific. <laughs> so oh, I, I never got a nine hour window during the race, but you know, <laughs> during the race, you know, I would get, I would get, uh, you know, usually we get at least five hours and, uh, you know, that seemed like it was plenty. Yeah. No, it's, it's great to hear. It's great to hear that some of these things are, are being put in practice. What's really interesting, Gavin, is to hear you speak about kind of your mindset around sleep. And this is something that a lot of insomniacs have or, you know, lots of people have done shift work and so on. And I don't think it sounds woo because I think it's really interesting. I'm just going to end of a book called um, A Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankl, who probably mm. many people have listened, uh, have, yeah, listened right. have read. And for some reason, I just never got around to reading that. And um, I read it recently and I'm just in the last like 20, 30 pages. And he, like his whole kind of book is about that having a meaning and having a purpose and I know it's a completely different type of uh, account of a personal experience, which is devastating. But it is like when you do these events, you have a meaning, you have a purpose. There is purpose in that suffering, which he speaks about. But also similar to what you said is his kind of whole psychiatric theory around or practice around logotherapy and about, you know, as opposed to thinking about the bad things or, or what's happening now, look to the future type of thing and and. You know, and that's what you kind of did. You said, look, I'm not going to be a bad sleeper anymore. 
I'm a great sleeper. And I changed my whole mind frame around that. And therefore, the body changed with it. So it's really interesting that when we do change our approach to these things with our mind, how much we can do. And I think that goes for a lot of things, not just sleep. There's um, many people I've spoken to. Oh, I couldn't run 5Ks. You know, I don't know how you do it. It's even two years later, they're running half marathons, marathons. A friend of mine that was on this podcast on episode three, he was the same. He's lost 20 kilos, so 40-odd pounds. He ran a 50K a few weeks ago. He, t- he, he said when he ran his first 5K, he, couldn't, he thought he couldn't do it. Yeah. You know? And yeah, so now, now he can. Yeah, the, the brain is, and that's what I, I love about these events is you realize how strong the brain is. I mean, there was, there was, I was getting chased by the, this Canadian, really tenacious guy, uh, the last two days of the race. And so the, the night before the, the last day, uh, I ran, I was just a couple K ahead of him and he was charging hard. So I ran a marathon the night before and then another marathon the next morning with the gear. And that was right at the end. And uh, yeah, I, I am not a runner the, this race, very few people run. You just have to walk fast all day. You know, yeah. so I can go forever, but this was, our, we were going up and over a pass and he was chasing hard and I ran, you know, and, uh, and it, 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 on the 12th day of this thing. And, and, uh, I, I just, felt incredible but but ha- but i just kept thinking like how in the world is this possible like how is my body still going and it's it's not it's the it's the brain it's it just it can do fabulous things and in in regards to sleep um what i've even done now is you know for sure since i had that talk with nick i haven't had just you know perfect sleep every day since then but the big difference is instead of waking up in the morning going god damn it another bad night of sleep you know, even if I don't feel like I've had a great night's sleep, I'll wake up out of bed and go, I had a great night's sleep. And it's, it's just, it's everything. It, it, it just yeah. changes your whole perspective. You're not tired. You're not sluggish. You're not, you know, it's, it's, it's that easy. I think that to just trick yourself into <laughs> whatever it needs to do. Yeah. I, I know a guy who's actually blind and he's in his fifties and he does jujitsu, which is frightening in itself, not, not having sight. But I spoke to him about sleep as well. I'm going to have somebody on the podcast probably early next year talking about sleep and blind people because there's, there's different kind of things that happen. And he was saying the same thing as well. Like with light exposure obviously being important and when you're blind, not having that light exposure. And there's differences around people who have their eyes actually like taken out and then those who have been like blind um, but still have their eyes in their head, you know, or left in, whatever, whatever way you want to describe it. But he was saying the same thing. Like, you know, sometimes he struggles with sleep and he just gets up in the morning and goes, you know, I've got to just say, I had a good, I've got to, I had a good sleep. It is what it is. And I've got to get on with today. I resynchronize tonight. And I've just got to get on with it. You know, and that yeah. guy is inspirational. He does judo. He does jiu-jitsu. He's run marathons. He's got a master's degree. He's been blind since birth. And nothing absolutely, nothing gets in his way. And it's great to see, wow. you know? Yeah, you know? that's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it's not... Now, like you said, I think I think a lot of it's just learned, you know. You you, you do it and, and it works and, well, okay, keep doing it. Yeah, so like it's like the old saying, isn't it? Wrong or right, you're right. You know, yeah. you believe you can, yeah. you believe you can't, you're right either way. Yeah, exactly. That's really important. If you believe you can't, you can't. If you believe you yeah. can, you can do it. So Gavin, you're you're one of our first guests that has a Wikipedia page, which is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, which makes you our star of the show so far. Um, but when I look at your Wikipedia page, Gavin, and I look and there's, there's, I encourage people to go and have a look at this or um, go to your website, Cloud-Based Mayhem. I'm, I'm interested in your mindset um, compared to, so you've got these Red Bull races, which you've just completed recently, but you also did this other race here that I'm looking at with uh, Dave Turner, where he wanted to traverse the Alaska Range by foot and paragliding which is a 480-mile route. Now, that's obviously under no kind of time pressure as such, other than the ones you've maybe set for yourself, but it's not a race per se. How, when you're doing these kind of challenges, and I must, I must say here, it says on the Wikipedia page as well, to complete this route solo after 37 days. <laughs> so, uh, that's even, that's crazy. But anyway, how... What's the difference between being in a race with that guy chasing you down as opposed to doing these kind of free free events where you're just moving from point A to point B with no pressure? What's the difference for you? Um, man, that's a good question. I, I don't even know if I can articulate it very well. I, you know, my my passion and my, you know, my drive, my motivation c- comes really more for uh, projects like Alaska. That was six years to put that one together. Um, I, it just, in my, 
view of the world and paragliding and my passion for flying, I, I don't know, still don't, but I didn't know of a harder route that could be done, which just meant it was, it just had to be done. And, you know, and no one had attempted it. Uh, we didn't have any information on flying up there. We, we really didn't know if it was possible. And that, that's just, uh, that's a challenge I, that's irresistible to me. So um, it was very close to my heart because it was, there was so much time and there was so much dreaming and planning and logistics that went into it. And uh, I just really had no idea if it was even possible. Most of the lines we fly in the world, whether it's the Himalaya or the Alps or Iran, you name it, you know, the big mountains, you know, you can look at a map and you know, with decent weather that something can be potentially done. And with Alaska, it was just so far North and there's so little infrastructure up there. There's, you know, there's no roads, there's nothing. Um, so just even like food became this massive uh, undertaking is you know, how do we, how are we going to get fed and how long is it going to take? And are we going to be able to fly and how do we get over the glaciers and how do we get over the rivers? Um, and so it's, I, what's the difference? The difference is the, you know, that one is just an adrenaline rush from start <laughs> to finish right, with, you know, the race and part of the, part of it for me really for whether it be Alaska or the Rockies, some of the other projects I've done, um, it's the anticipation. It's, it's, uh, you know, especially with the X Alps, it's, it's not just the race, it's the months and months and months that go into it. And I, I feel very fortunate to, you know, even the training, it's, it's not, it's hard, but it's not hard and in, in a bad hard. It's, uh, I just, I really look forward to it. I, it's, it's a very simple, the motivation comes from the simplicity of the task, you know, that there's all the other stuff in life really goes out to the margins when you're undertaking these kind of things. And I, that's what I dig the most is that, you know, bills and whatever is troubling you, uh, social media and email and whatever that you got to fix the back wall of the house, whatever, all these, all the things that just intrude on life, uh, and that become kind of a big deal. You realize when you're out there, they're really not big deals. And, and, uh, so I guess it's just the, it's the anticipation. It's the chase. It's, you know, when I, the big difference too is when I'm in Alaska, but I've done a number of the expeditions like that. And some of them have been kind of big film projects like the Alaska one was, that was a Red Bull Media House production. And you can see it online, just Google North Unknown and, and uh, they, they've got it on now. Um, a beautiful movie. Um, but the, you know, I, typically the people I'm with when I, it's all about like, getting there it's like a we, we got to get there we got to get to the end <laughs> um, and i'm always the guy like eh, let's let it take a little bit longer because you know we've put our whole life put logistics and money and time um and now we're there now we're in alaska and we've got these amazing you know okay there's some bears and there's some glaciers and there's some stuff that's a little bit scary but uh, I, I'm not in a rush to get it over with. Whereas the X Alps, that's very much a race. You're trying to go really fast. But in the end of both of those, I always experience the same thing, which is disappointment. And, um, you know, there's always this kind of, oh no, what's next? Because you've worked so hard for it that it's very anticlimactic. It's just like travel. You know, when you go somewhere and you have a trip, uh, I don't go on vacations because I think they're stupid. You know, I, I, I try to make life, you know, pretty interesting so I don't have to, but you know, when you, when you come back from a trip and you, and there's, they always talk about the, the you know, the coming home being quite anticlimactic and, and it kind of a letdown. And I, I always struggle with that at the end of these, whether it's the X Alps or one of these expeditions is um, because it's just so fantastic being out there. Um, you know, when Dave left in Alaska and I continued on on my own, the film crew, everybody left, Every, everybody took off. And, and so I had, you know, the last kind of third of the route just totally to myself. And, um, you know, there were parts of that that were a bit nerve wracking for sure. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it, it's, it's quite a treat to have nothing to do except to wake up and stay fed and stay alive. That's, basically the task that's you know that's pretty simple living I, I, I like that a lot the reason the reason i'm laughing here obviously we can see each other the reason i'm laughing is because that's one of the big things that appeals to me about ultra running is that um people say to me about you know how can you like it so much i don't know if i actually like running that much and to be honest with you what i do like is that state that you get into that kind of a flow where basically you become your life boils down to just getting from point a to point b 
all that really matters now is about staying upright, taking in oxygen, taking in food, taking in water. And you're out there with none of these kind of external factors, like you say, email or phone or bills. You sort of synchronize with the earth. You synchronize with nature. Sounds a bit woo-woo again, but you seem to just kind of go, right, this is my purpose today. This is what I'm doing. And nothing else matters. And all sorts of crazy things that you think about, you know, kind of go away. And for me, I hear another podcast about people doing mushrooms, going to ayahuasca to reset your body. If I do one or two 100K runs a year, or even one, that seems to reset me. It seems to yeah. kind of do something to me where I just kind of nearly, it's like a big meditative exercise where I get out of my body. And last week I went up into the hills in Perth and um, nowhere near big, crazy, beautiful mountains. But, um, you know, I went running for two hours and I came back and I was just super charged for days because it just kind of took me away from a bad week that I was having, really allowed me to resynchronize, refocus, and I came back and my chest was pumping full of oxygen and blood. It was just a crazy feeling. I felt so good from that. And I don't think so much it's the, it's the running. I think it's just getting into that flow state. And for me, running is the entry into it. Nothing else does it for me. Track runs don't do it for me. Cycling a bike, adventure race, and I've tried them all. And you know, they've, they've done nothing for me. The second closest to that will be probably jujitsu, where when someone is trying to choke you, you can't be thinking about, oh, I need to send that email. Because if you do, you're going to get choked. You have to live in that moment again. And for me, that's the two ways that I can really get into this meditative state. I can't seem to sit on a cushion and relax and resynchronize and, and focus on life. I need to be in something to nearly get out of something, which is a bit weird. So kind of similar. Yeah, I think I, I think that's pretty common. You know, I mean I've yeah. I've had this very patchy uh meditation practice for years and years and years. And you know, I, I do it because I know that it's probably good and important, but the only way I know how to get there is to is to disappear and go out there. And like you said, it can be it, it could be as easy as a mountain bike ride. It's just um, it's a it's a it's my way of, of resetting. I guess a very first world problem, isn't it? But it's uh you know I I just feel so fortunate when I'm doing it that it, it allows me to come back to this world too with the more compassion and love and sensitivity and it you know i i know for a fact that it just makes me a better person one of the really interesting things about the the x alps as opposed to like alaska which was a very kind of solo endeavor and kind of internal thing um whereas the x alps you're super reliant uh i mean in some ways the hardest job is your is your team's job it's not even you know and my job is to put my head down and go hard yeah. um their job is to figure out how to get me there which is really challenging and you know at the you know there's the flying and there's seeing these beautiful countries and beautiful people along the road and italian pizza and you know all the wonderful things that go into making that event just spectacular it's just the greatest game there is but you know, in the end, what brings us all to tears is that, you know, is, is leaving Ben and Bruce, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not, a, I haven't been in the army, Ben has, but he talks about it. It's, it's similar to the kind of bond you create in war, you know, that you're, you, you, we become so reliant on one another and we joke the whole time and we're serious, but we, it's, it's, it's very playful. And, um, I, I don't have an opportunity to have that kind of bond and that kind of closeness with, with many other people. It just, it's the, the circumstances puts you in these places that, um, you know, you, you laugh and you cry together. And, uh, and that's really that when I look back on the races, that's why I do it. It's not the, it's not the physical, it's not the flying, it's not the race, it's not the competition. It's not trying to win. Those are all great things, but, um, yeah, it's that I, I would never do it without those guys. It wouldn't be the same. Yeah, and I suppose people don't really, it's hard to articulate that to other people that haven't been part of that kind of circle with you. It's kind of like yeah. you said, kind of, that special bond. But on, on, yeah. the flip, on the flip side, Gavin, when, we look at, when I look at your website and I see all these great movies up here, North of Known, Trailer, uh, the Rocky Mountain Traverse, you know, and many more up on the website, and all these great clips and great scenery. And I, uh, for anybody listening, if, if you're not into paragliding, you're not into running, Go and have a look at some of these videos. Even just watch 20 seconds. Some awesome cinematography in them. Like just in pictures. It's just unbelievable. And it'll make you want to get up from your desk and start moving today. Yeah. But you've, cool. do, you've, done, you've done these, Gavin, and, and these great videos. And, and then you've also done some commercial work and like with Ford and Subaru. And then you've obviously got sponsorship. And 
that's that's very different. So we talk about this kind of synchronization with life and meditation, but then on the other side, you've got like Patagonia, Red Bull, Ford, Subaru, and I'm probably missing out on half your sponsors here, but um, I, you're, you're also nominated for a National Geographic Adventure of the Year Award. So how do you balance all that kind of real first world kind of commercial issue with this very kind of, I don't know, kind of grounding activity of, of connection with the land and, and activity? How, what's, how do you do the difference? Yeah, I mean, to be totally honest, I, I don't know that I I have that separated very well. You know, I think that that's, I'm just really thankful and I have a lot of gratitude towards that because it allows me to do what I do. Um, I, I mostly have to put a, sh not a plug by any means because they wouldn't even want it, but um, none of this would be possible without Patagonia. The other ones are pretty superficial in, in, in most ways not superficial i mean they're they're very important i'm not not <laughs> saying they're not they're, it's just sorry sorry uh, sorry sponsor sorry we apologize you know it's 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 a great privilege and honor to represent patagonia because their their corporate culture and yvonne and what they do and who they are is very much in line with my own belief system and i just think they're an amazing company so you know, to represent them is, I would do it for free. Uh, and in fact, I did for years and years and years. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I just, that's a great privilege. Um, you know, so for them, with them, it's, it's, it's really very easy. Uh, you know, Red Bull without Red, I'm not a Red Bull athlete, but they, the, you know, the two big Red Bull films that I've done, um, you know, I, I would it'd be really hard to have done those projects without them, uh, without that kind of backing. You know, I didn't make money doing those. That wasn't a pay thing. It's just, you know, to get into those places and do what we did um, on your own dollar uh, would be, would be pretty tough. It can be done. And I, and I do do those expeditions as well that are, you know, that are, that are not, they don't have anything to do with sponsors. Um, and I think those are also really important, you know, so it's, it's a balance. Um, part of it is, you know, I've always kind of viewed it as kind of a game and uh, I like that game. It's, it's, it's quite fun. It's quite challenging. It also keeps me, it kind of keeps me on point, you know, like the, the podcast and the writing and that stuff. Um, I, I really just enjoy it. And, you know, if these companies can benefit from that and, and it's a two way street, then great. You know, that, that works really well. I don't ever feel a real great pressure from that. You know, if the sponsorship went away, um, you know, what I learned from all those years sailing around the world and that business and that kind of thing is I'll be, I'll be okay. I'll be fine. You know, it, it, life will, will carry on and I'll keep doing this stuff and, um, and just be, I'll just have to do less Facebook posts, which sounds really good. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but that's good to hear. <laughs> uh, good old Facebook. Um, <laughs> I did have a question you totally threw me though because you made that comment yeah. <laughs> um, it, interesting about Patagonia I watched a, a documentary a few years ago and I can't remember the name of it it was a guy who was on 180 degrees south 180 degrees south that's right and he was speaking yeah. about um, and I didn't notice that North Face and Patagonia were set up by two guys who were rock climbing buddies yeah. so one guy set up North Face and the other guy set up Patagonia and they were in this documentary yeah. where they were sitting there drinking I think the Mate drinking in, in Patagonia, they were chatting away. Did one of those guys die recently? Yeah, Doug Tompkins uh, very tragically died in a plane crash. Uh, he's a pilot, and uh, and you know they have the two of them set up the largest private land trust in the world down in Patagonia, yeah. and they you know they buy up tons and tons and tons of land, and then they you know, they pull the fences and they revert it to its totally natural state, and then they give it back. Uh, they, they teach the Chileans how to manage it. And I, we went to one of his properties when we were sailing down there to park Puma. I mean, the, the, I don't, I don't know nearly as much about Doug as I do about Yvonne, but I mean, he truly is, you know, what he says, he's a crotchety old bugger. I love him, he's, but he's, you know, the, he lives, he still doesn't use a cell phone or a laptop. He's, he's taken six months off from his company every year since he started it. Um, you know, he's, he's a really unique individual and he's, you know, but he, he really does care. And that, that's the culture at the, at 
at their at Patagonia with everybody that works there. And the remarkable thing that he says over and over again is the harder he tries to do everything right, the more money they make. You know, so clearly he's trying to set an example to the rest of corporations in the world, like, hey, you don't have to just worry about the bottom line. I'm doing really well. And I'm worried about my employees and I'm worried about the environment and I'm worried about doing no harm. And, you know, that's their company motto. They're just cool. You know, they're, they're, they really are amazing. And it's, uh, I'm really honored to, to be part of that clan. Well, well, that's great to hear, Gavin, because, you know, when, after I watched that documentary and I read some stuff, I was kind of a little bit dubious about, oh, maybe it's just a kind of a corporate kind of flavor of the month about this sustainable development environmental. But when you hear people who work within, within the company, such as yourself, um, as a, as a sponsor athlete with them, to hear you say that, that means a lot. And I think for me now, no, they, definitely, they really I, 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 I will seek out to support Patagonia in the future, even though it is expensive gear. It's expensive gear. It's yeah. nice gear, but it's expensive. But I well, will you see, know, I, seek out to, and this to is, support them. Like, this is something a lot of people don't know. Like, you know, they, they, they ran this famous ad in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago that just said, don't buy this jacket, you know, and of course they still zillions of them because of that. Um, but that true, you know, they have vans that travel around North America that fix your gear. I mean, their stuff is warranted forever. Everything that you buy, I mean, it is really expensive, but literally it lasts forever. And, uh, and if it doesn't, they'll repair it. They'll take it back. They literally want you to give anything that you're not using anymore. They'll take it back. They'll repair it. They'll resell it. They'll re, re they'll refabricate it into something else that's useful. Um, I mean, they, they live it. They, they just, they just really are remarkable. One of his, one of my favorite quotes in that movie that he said is, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe to stay, maybe we don't need to, maybe to move forward, we got to turn around and take a step back. And, and I, I really like that. I mean, that really is their culture is they, they really are, um, you know, profit and profitability. Of course they have to stay in business, you know, to, to employ everybody, but he's almost run the company to the ground several times by, you know, just switching to organic materials and just fabricating in, you know, in safe facilities that are good to their employees. And, you know, they're, they're just not, the bottom line is not what's driving them. And that's, that's unique in the corporate world. Part of that's yeah. because he's, you know, he keeps it private. He won't, he won't, he will never go public. Yeah. It's very unique in this, in today's environment. Yeah. It's interesting. He said we're taking a step back. Uh, I don't know if you listen to the Jocko podcast. He was speaking about, um, Jocko's an ex Navy SEAL guy. And he was yeah. um, speaking about Dick Winters, who's the, the major old Band of Brothers, the HBO series that was popular about 16, 17 years ago. And yeah. Dick Winter's um, book about being in World War II, that's one of the things he says is about taking a step back from the front line. It may only be 10, 20, 30 meters, but if you're in the battle with people, you can't see what's going on and you can't make strategic decisions. So therefore, you need to step back. And that's a lot of, lot of, lot of things that we see in business, you know, from my previous days in business as well and in the military. Is about taking that step to the rear and looking at the big picture and what's going on because you're right to yeah. go forward. You have to go back sometimes and, and just look. So yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Gavin, before we wrap up um, this awesome conversation, which could go on 20 different tangents, <laughs> I feel like we could sit around for 12 hours talking about everything. Um, I, I do want to ask you, to, to, for, the, for the people out there, the listeners, as an athlete who does these crazy events of 30, 40 days of kind of you know, constant motion, what would be the number one sleep tip you would give to people out there who might be amateur athletes or people just, you know, generally trying to optimize performance with sleep? What's your number one sleep tip? Gosh, you know, the thing that changed most for me was that what we were talking about, believe in yourself, you know, believe you can do it. I think that's the, I think that's where you got to start is um, recognize that we're, we don't, we don't do well without it. It's super important. You got to figure it out. And so the first step is, is believing that you can do it. That was what that worked for me. I, I don't have anything more profound than that. I think it's just, uh, you know, if you, if you believe you can be a good sleeper, you can be a good sleeper. So sleep. <laughs> and so on the, on the opposite side of that, what's your number one sleep don't. So what should people not do? Don't, don't fart around on the internet. Uh, that's that's what kills me is is you know i i, I mean and, I, and i'm being serious too i mean i think i think screens you know after 6 p.m is it you're scrambling your brain and uh you know so no emails no you know i i think you know back i think we all were much much better sleepers when we read books 
Um, and I, I just think that I think sleep, I think screens are killing us and, uh, and they're just a necessary part of life these days for most people. So I think, you know, like in, in many aspects of life, uh, many aspects of life, I hate structure, but many aspects of life need structure. And, and I think, you know, for, to just perform in life as a person, um, you know, whether that's in athletics or, uh, in education or your job or taking care of your kids or whatever it is, um, you know, there are things in order to, to be efficient, you've got to have structure and you have to make sleep part of that. And, that means to me that, you know, you just, you're not going to sleep well if you're checking out Instagram at 10 PM. It's not, that's not going to happen. I love Instagram. I really dig it. You know, I follow people that put up some really cool stuff, but I do it for six. Yeah. No, you get that. I love it. I think it's, I think that's really important. I just think screens are, you know, if I'm, if I'm banging away on the computer late and answering emails and stuff, I don't have a chance. Yeah, and I've experienced that myself personally. I think for me, it's more the type of activity that I do personally. And I know that for me, if I have a kind of a, a day that's, that's, you know, gone to the rats and I'm, I'm trying to catch up in the evening and stuff, it actually becomes counterproductive because then I can't sleep till one, two o'clock in the morning because I've just got myself in this kind of false economy of trying to catch up. And just yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I think it's the false economy thing. And I, I just think that we're you know, we are set up these days much more so than we've ever been to scramble and get ahead. And what success means for people is, is working really, really hard. But I, I've become very convinced that, um, we take the breaks. If we go out on our bike, if we take the run, if we relax and talk to our friends and actually talk to them and, you know, and be present. And during that, and I, I this is something I'm poor at, you know, and, and I, I've tried to really work on it because you can, you can bang it out so much better. You're so much more creative. And, uh, you know, so, and I think that that's, that evening thing is part of it. I, I think we're kidding ourselves by going, Oh man, if I work until midnight, um, you know, I'm going to get a lot more done. I think you're busy a lot more, but I don't know that you're that, you're getting that much more done. Yeah. Yeah. Busy, busy versus productivity. That's as another podcast yeah. in itself. Yeah. 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 <laughs> don't, don't be busy. That's not a good excuse. I'm busy. No, nah, no. Nah. Don't be busy. <laughs> All right, Gavin, listen, thank you very much for being on the podcast. I think people are going to love this, um, this, this episode. Really interesting. Uh, like I say, you're our first person with a Wikipedia page. So we're very honored to have you. <laughs> Gavin, thank you very much. Cheers. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Ian. Talk to you soon.